today my intention is to talk about something that's a bit challenging, a bit controversial, and um, and I've, I I want to say that we started this program. How do I how do I apply the Dhamma to this? Uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, when many people were facing so many major changes happening in such a short time that it was very challenging and that question of whatever arises in our life how do we how do we apply the dhamma to it and how do we use it to make progress in our practice and we've seen so many of you do this um, in so many ways dealing with the various things that crop up in life and Fortunately for all of us, the Buddha's teaching really applies. I haven't seen anything that it that it doesn't apply to, you know, and, and that is such an amazing gift, of course. It's like finding gold. And uh, and so what I want to talk about today is a specific example that has a, a fair bit of controversy around it, but the general idea is that in the world, in our lives, in our experience, our existence as human beings, everything has a dark side to it. Um, you know, it's uh, it has some impurities in it including what's happening in our own minds. And every organization that we encounter, every kind of situation in the world, there's always this kind of mixture of what's wholesome and unwholesome. Even if we look at the most unwholesome um, character we can imagine, there's something mixed in there that's good there's something mixed in there that has the potential for good. And every kind of really good, good, wonderful, inspiring thing also has some kind of, you know, tinge of impurity or imperfection. And, you know, you may not agree with this, and that's okay. <laughs> this is my experience. And I think that What's valuable about saying that is not whether or not it's absolutely true, although I haven't found any evidence to the contrary yet, that it's, it's our, our job, you might say, our challenge to always seek out uh, and be clear about what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. What is it that we want to continue to feed and what is it that we want to starve? Uh, we want to feed the good and starve the, the, the bad, the unwholesome. And we want to be able to have enough understanding, kindness, compassion, empathy, to, to recognize that we ourselves are often in situations where we can't or for one reason or another, don't really fully emerge into what's good. 
And we have these, these other components that need to be dealt with that aren't so good. And the same for others. And how do we, how do we be kind, understanding, and clear? So this, I want this talk, both in the way that I offer it and in the larger picture of how we make use of it, to be predicated upon a dedication to truth and also kindness. So this uh, sort of controversial topic I've been alluding to is something that comes up repeatedly in our experience with people who come through and in our own ex experience and exposure to, to life. And it's the gender discrimination in the Thai forest tradition. And this topic can bring up all kinds of different feelings for people, obviously. Uh, and as I talk about it, if, if it's something you don't want to hear about, look at that. If it's something that brings up a strong feeling, look at that. Uh, something you don't care about at all, you know, bear with me and see if you can apply what happened, what, what comes out of this to the other things that do matter to you. And the reason, like I said, I want to talk about this particularly is because people struggle with it. And I think the first thing, um, I think the first thing is that I want to share that my introduction to the Buddhist teachings came through my, my son becoming a monk in the Thai forest tradition in the Ajahn Chah um, lineage. And I spent time visiting him in Thailand, staying at Wapananacha. And I was um, deeply committed to my own spiritual path and practicing in a, in a, a theistic yoga tradition, you know, so very, had some similarities to Buddhism, but also some significant differences. And what I found being with the monks and having that opportunity to learn from them and talk with them, uh, both the new ones and the more experienced ones and the very experienced ones and listen, listening to the teachings and all of that was that it was amazingly pure. Just beautiful, so inspiring, so inspiring, the wisdom, the clarity, the, the dedication, the renunciation, these men who were so um, committed to living this life in a way that was as pure as they could make it. And struggling with whatever, you know, comes along with their conditioning and the past and, and whatever comes along in, in life. Um, and it was like finding gold, I, so inspiring. And it had so much of a powerful impact on me and what happened in my own spiritual development. 
And so it's, it's fascinating in a way to me how something can be so precious and amazing. And then, you know, it still has these, these pieces, these aspects that are less than ideal. As you know, it's, it's not ideal. And you start to really learn, I guess, how idealism can be such a barrier to our progress. If we expect to find something that's perfectly clear, perfect, perfect, it, um, it stalls our progress. It, it can cause us to at some times be blinded um, to seeing the imperfections because we don't want to see it. I mean, as human beings, we live in this world that's got this dark and light mix all the time. We really would love to find somebody who's absolutely pure, <laughs> somebody who knows what's going on, and we just want to follow that. You know, like I've had those moments where can I just like not have to think about whether it's wholesome or not and just follow someone who really knows? <laughs> And I think this, in a lot of ways, is what we do as human beings when we conceive of God. You know, this is, this is the, the all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, and I just can go along with that. <clears throat> but if we really have that dedication to truth, and we keep examining things, and we really, really look at things, and we're willing to look, even at the things we hold so precious and dear, to see everything about it, we see these imperfections. And so there was a point when I was at, um, in Thailand at a monastery, and there was a monk I was talking with, and he said, yeah, I love this tradition, and I love the practice, and I'm dedicated to it, but there are two things that really should be changed. And he said, one of them is the foods that you're allowed to eat after midday, because they're really not very healthy. They're supposed to be for medicine, but <clears throat> in the long term, it's not. And that they should have women's ordination. And after all these years, I can look at the Thai forest tradition and I go, yep, they should change the allowables. <laughs> we should have women's ordination. And why do I say that? Well, obviously, um, the ordination became important to me because I wanted to give my life to this fully and make use of the vehicle that the Buddha created for men and for women. Um, and the fact that that's not acknowledged, accepted, supported in certain ways by the tradition, well, there are lots of reasons for that. And things are changing uh, in that direction, I feel. I see, I experience. But when I, but I, um, as I look at, you know, look more deeply, you see that men and women 
involved in this come from a lot of different places on it and have different perspectives on it. So Ajahn Pasano said to me a long time ago, it's not like all the monks think the same way. And they don't. Some of them really struggle with this idea that there isn't uh, ordination available to women. They try really hard to make what is available, the eight precept ordination or, or you know, commitment as supported as possible, that kind of thing. And, you know, there are some who get so disillusioned by this that they leave and others stick with it that are, are you know, trying in, you know, to work on things to make it available. And there are others who, you know, seem to kind of like just, I can't do anything about it. They just shut it, shut it out. And others who really would would love for women to never get ordained, <laughs> you know, it's like there's the whole spectrum, and there can be all kinds of influences in the background about why different people have different views on it. And one of the things to notice is that there's there's a a shift that has to happen as a tradition moves from one culture to another. And we see that, you know, mo most of Buddhism has thrived and been uh, in cultures and societies that are quite hierarchical. And so Buddhism itself, the, the monastic tradition, has taken on a very strong hierarchical kind of framework. But the Buddha himself didn't really place such a importance on hierarchy. There was much more, it was much more democratic, much more, you know, like um, opportunity for people to speak up uh, regardless of their seniority. And even for, for women, when he ordained women, he gave them the same ordination he gave to men, and he told the monks to teach the nuns, because the monks already had learned from him, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, and to, to pass that on to the women. And as the women's group became more you know, grounded in the Dhamma and the Vinaya, then they were also encouraged to do all of their own uh, administration and leadership and their community was really autonomous. There were only a few things that they looked to for the monks' support. And it was really intended as support, not as control. But then the whole thing, you know, kind of grows up in a, in a male dominated societies and in uh, you know, like very hierarchical structures, and it starts to take on a different flavor. And then you get to this place where now we have huge advancements in Western societies around women being able to have leadership positions and much more, it's much more egalitarian. And this isn't so, hasn't been going on for so long. I mean, when I was growing up in the 60s in the Midwest, there was significant um, 
kind of sense that men are the ones who are in the leadership positions. And there's no way that a woman would give a sermon in the church. It wasn't done. And if a woman did step up to the pulpit to give a sermon as a fully ordained minister, I don't know. I think most people would have thought everything's going to pieces here. <laughs> it's, like, it's, just, it's just like the, the, the conditioning wasn't there yet to see that as something not only acceptable, but but a wonderful opportunity for a different voice and different perspective and, you know, the kind of things that we see in our culture because of the advancements in women being able to get education and, and develop and become, um, you know, able to serve in our community in various ways. And, you know, I found it interesting at the beginning of, or during the pandemic to read an article that's, that talked about the countries that did the best with the pandemic were actually led by women. You know, you have that kind of thing happen. Again, it's, there's, there's the positive and there's the negative in everything. And so when, when the Thai forest tradition moves into the West, we have this discord because of the, the changes that have happened in the last 60 years in America, for example, but in other Western cultures too, affording women more of a place. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with this tradition that has not come along that far yet to acknowledge women's ordination? So you have people, you know, again, standing in different places. Some, I've heard Bakuni say to lay people, don't go to visit those monks who don't support Bakuni ordination. And we would never say that because we don't want people to miss out on the gold. We want them to visit those monks and, and gain that inspiration and dhamma and example, but also be clear that they're limited in an important way. And they, many of them, know they're limited and don't like it. And, you know, like to, to try to understand, you know, how a person can stay in a system that's not ideal, and willing to work with it, or how a person just says, I have to leave this and do something else. That also, you know, it's all valid. It just depends on where you're coming from and how you see it and what you're able to do to, to work with the situation. But we have, as practitioners, what's needed, whether it's this kind of situation or some other situation in your life, is to be dedicated to truth, not to turn a blind eye. And any of us, we, we have these areas where we're pr privileged and these areas perhaps where we're not. And when there's privilege, there's always this potential that we don't look and can't see what it's like to not be in the privileged position. So this is always our challenge as Dhamma practitioners to really 
dig in and be willing to see the truth, no matter what kind of structure or, or view that we may have or perception of ourselves that gets, you know, crashed in the process. We, we need to, we want to, otherwise we can't awaken. So then you can ask yourself, okay, how can Arahants not support the Kuni ordination? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, just because you're an Arahant, we have to understand what Arahant, what it means to be an Arahant. There's no more greed, hatred, or delusion. Wow, that's huge. You know, to be with an Arahant, even if they're in a tradition that doesn't acknowledge the Kuni ordination, they still support women all the way. You know, they're still they're still totally um, interested in in the thriving and the blossoming of everybody in the Dhamma. And Arahants don't, but we have to realize Arahants don't know everything. Like um, one of the disciples of Ajahn Chah told me that there was a, a time when one of the, the nuns at Ajahn Chah's monastery had an eating disorder, serious. Uh, and he said Ajahn Chah couldn't relate to it. He didn't know what to do with it. He didn't understand it. It's like, just eat, you know. <laughs> and so it, it's not like when you're an Arahant, you know all of these things. I, I, I was witnessing an Arahant really taking this Westerner to task who was overweight and really, like, um, saying you can't stay here unless you lose weight and was like when you're here you're going to just get this little bit of rice every day until the weight is off and you know just like no understanding of what that kind of uh, way of being spoken to as a westerner would be like that that could be traumatic you know there's just just because you're an arahant <laughs> doesn't mean you understand like cultural or societal or psychological things, even as much as we would like something to be perfect, it's not gonna be that way. So the, the Buddha used the simile of purifying gold um, in a number of places in the suttas. And I, and I think it's really appropriate for this conversation because you find this gold, whenever you find gold, there's going to be impurities in it. And there's one sutta where the Buddha talks about washing the gold. At first you wash all the grit and the, the main dirt off of it, and then you and then you have to wash it again to to you know get the finer dirt off of it, and then you have to wash it again to get even more of the dust off of it or whatever, you know, and, and then you have to heat it and the heating and and the and you sprinkle water on it sometimes and you blow on it sometimes and you know you you eventually the impurities filter away, the dross can be, you know, eliminated, and you have, finally you have pure gold. And it's only through that dedicated process that we can purify our minds and purify our conduct and purify our organizations 
and and do what we can and always we have to be aware that impurity comes back in because greed hatred and delusion is part of what's in this world if that went away entirely everybody'd be like stilled forever in nibbana <laughs> you know it's like that's, but that's not going to happen here <laughs> it's it's not how it works so when i sometimes um when I talk about the Thai forest tradition as my tradition, I, there was a bhikkhuni who said, how oh, can you call it your tradition? They don't even officially acknowledge your ordination. But that's not my experience. I mean, obviously, that's true. But there's so much there of goodwill, purity. Um, the gold is so precious. And I can see how a monk who wants it to be different than it is would still stay and and not want to lose the gold. And it's the same the same thing that I'm saying to lay people. Go visit the monks, listen to their talks, recognize where the limitations might be. And, and it's the same for my talks or anybody's talks. My, you know, like we all have these blind spots. We all have these, these challenges, things that are there that we don't understand yet or see. And, you know, to, to really take what's good and see the other side of things and see where we can be supportive for each other of you know more purification. How do we help? Um, not long ago, someone asked if spending time at one of the Western Ajahn Chah monasteries was okay or not given this situation with women's ordination. And I said, of course it's okay. It's beautiful. There's so much to be gained there. You just need to be aware of what the limitations are. And, and when you, maybe there's a right time at some point to see if there's any way to support progress there. Who knows? And, and I feel the same way about whatever I'm doing, you know, it would be easy to find things that should be improved. And how can I improve that? Or how might my Kalyanamitas help me to do that? And, you know, to have the empathy for the positions people take. Why do they take the stance they take? Yeah, sometimes it's going to be driven by defilement. We have to be clear about that in ourselves and what we're observing in others. And sometimes it's driven by something else. Like, have you ever supported someone who's done something wrong, but you can't just turn away from them because of all the good that's there? This is the this is the kind of thing I'm really so invite you I just, to investigate. I guess the main point here is to Be dedicated to that truth. Now we want to see what's true. 
And this afternoon, we're going to talk about wisdom at the East Bay Dhamma meeting. And we're going to talk about, you know, how do we preserve truth and discover truth, like you see in the Chanki Sutta, Majjhiman Nikaya 95. How do we do that? How do, how, do we, how do we look deeply into things so we really can um, let go of the unwholesome? And how do we come to the whole thing with kindness? You know, when, when what arises in us is resentment or anger or judgment, you know, there's a kind of superiority there, an ego eye-making, mind-making in there that we want to notice and let go of, come back to a place of humility and kindness and compassion. And then how do we know when it's time to stay or it's time to go? And this is something that we want to address in an upcoming day long too, limits, boundaries. And the Buddha was very clear about this. He didn't talk about, well, when, well, he did, okay? When he, he said when people are doing things that are immoral, hurtful, you know, like they're killing, stealing, lying, etc. Stay away from it. There are boundaries that should be held. But he also says, knowing when to stay and support and encourage something to be better, knowing when to stay and make use of the good and you know, leave the unwholesome alone, or when to go depends on what's happening in your own mind. So he said, when your own wholesome states are increasing and your unwholesome states are decreasing, then you stay. When your unwholesome states are increasing and your wholesome states are decreasing, then you go. And I like that because he doesn't he doesn't try to define every situation and, you know, like, like the situation is the problem. It's what's happening inside of us. That's where the responsibility is. That's where the action is. That's where we have control. So Buddhism is, is incredible because it's not about blaming what happens externally. It doesn't put the power there outside of us. It's internal. We decide. We have to work with what's happening. And when, when we are um, gaining goodness from something, we only want to continue to foster that. Early on when I was um, on Anagarika, a friend of mine said, why do you want to be involved with this thing that's got this gender discrimination? Why not walk away? Well, it's because I can't find this anywhere else. I've looked. I couldn't find this kind of purity and dedication to the Dhamma and living it anywhere else. And it's super precious. And I'm not going to walk away from it just because it's not perfect, because it's not ideal, because it hasn't evolved yet to that place as an organization. 
So I hope that's useful. Um, I hope that the example is clear enough that we can take it and expand it to every area of our experience because that's really where the action is. That's what right effort is, you know, really working with our mental states, but our mental states are, are the result and the influence both on what's happening around us, what's happening in our context. And every context has this challenge of sorting through the good and the bad, of knowing how to handle them, and knowing how to purify the gold in us as well as around us. So thank you for listening. And now I really appreciate hearing what you have to say. Yes, Ron and Serena. Thank you for this, <clears throat> Aya. Thank you for your courage to take up this subject today. I um, totally, I've agreed with everything you said today, except that there's been huge advances in the world <laughs> for, the, for women. For the 21st century, I think it's pretty pitiful, but there's been progress. As far as in the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Tomato and Ajahn Pasano were my first monastic teachers and will always be as dear in my heart as they have been. In the last few years, I came to a point in my practice, something was missing. And I was remembering years ago being at Abayagiri when Ajahn Sundara was in residence for I think a couple of years in California, meeting her, talking with her, getting to know her. I was remembering that a lot. And I realized that that's what was missing for me. And I missed her because she's in England now. And I lost contact with her, except for talks that are on YouTube. So I said to Ajahn Pasano, I need a woman's voice now in my practice. And he totally encouraged and supported me to study with you, Aya. And I'm ever grateful to him for that and to, for finding you because you have brought the balance that I hear in your words today and I always hear. You spoke today of kindness and um, truth. And I always find that with you. And you have brought the balance of what was missing for me and the monks who I dearly love um, and listen to and get wisdom from. Because you're right, the Thai tradition is the one that is pure, it's conservative, it's traditional, but the wisdom is there. And you have brought the balance of the woman's voice that is sorely needed for balance in our practice. And I support the bhikkhunis and I dearly hope that at some point they will be formally, officially recognized. Um, I'm not sure. I have some ideas what 
where that might come from, I'm not sure I'll see it in my lifetime. I'm going on 73. I hope so. Would be lovely. And in the meantime, I'm truly grateful to you for everything you've brought into my life and to the life I share with Ron and our relationship. Can't ever thank you enough. Yeah, thank you, Serena. Um, you reminded me of a couple of things that I'd like to say in addition. You know, this, this thing that I'm trying to get at here, um, it's not just that I think the Thai forest tradition is the only place where this uh, wonderful thing happens. It's just the place where I have experience of it. And when we, when we as Buddhists start to try to discriminate against other traditions or, or lay uh, teaching efforts or anything else, we've got to look at these same things. We've got to like open ourselves to appreciating what's good and recognizing, you know, what works for us and what doesn't. And, and appreciating that every, everyone has challenges and every organization has challenges. And so, you know, to just recognize that and to, to have that, that kindness and compassion for everybody involved and to constantly try to highlight the good and encourage it um, everywhere. So not to, you know, um, I, um, Venerable Bhikkhu Analyo wrote this wonderful book about priority conceit and superiority conceit in, the, in Buddhism. It's a very good book if you have a chance to take a look at it. And it, it shows, you know, like this, these problems that we find in human life, they're just, they just show up everywhere. It, it's, it's like again and again, we get to see, you know, what is, what is it we need to do to practice, to, to work with this in the right way. And so I just wanted to make sure that that, that fullness, that all inclusiveness is there. It means, yeah, we don't tolerate immorality. The Buddha said, don't tolerate thoughts of cruelty, thoughts of, you know, sensual desire and, and harming, but, you know, to really work with our mind in these situations. Yeah. Virginia? Um, I'm really grateful that you are that you are bringing this up today. It's something that is kind of on my mind a lot, and I um, was wondering if you might be able to speak a little more specifically about how to manage um, and how to like when I, when you're speaking, I hear a lot of confidence and a lot of faith and kind of depersonalizing that this is really a flaw in the organization. And I have found that especially on this, in the sensitivity of practice, it can be hard to not absorb the, um, that inequality and that kind of internalized sense of not belonging. So I wonder if you might speak a little bit about how to maintain that boundary 
while also being able to really be open and kind of taking the risks that practice requires? Beautiful question. And that's right at the heart of how to work with this, because it is so easy to absorb these attitudes and internalize them and follow along. And we see this in, in others. Sometimes it's easier to see in others than it is to see in ourselves. So how do you do it? That, that dedication to truth has to be incredibly strong in us. And, and it's not just in this situation. It has to be incredibly and strong, strong in all of us, each of us, in order to awaken. And I feel like one of the really tough positions in this whole example that we're talking about is the Western monk who's raised in a society that's egalitarian and respects women and supports them in their development. They come into this kind of environment where there is so much good and they, they're getting so much from it. And then there's this, there's got to be an incredible dissonance for them. They can't really honestly present themselves. Whereas we are lucky in some ways, we don't have that pressure. We can speak openly about these things. And you as a, as a practitioner, any of you as practitioners, you're not bound by having to toe the kind of party line. You're freer than the monk, the Western monk who's got that internal dissonance. You can say what you see as wholesome and unwholesome. If there's kindness there and you're not resentful. So what, what doesn't work very well is uh, like, I, I'm going to push the political agenda. And this is because I want women's right. It comes off as a very worldly kind of um, value. But if, it, if the value really is the development in the Dhamma and following what the Buddha did, then it comes as, as an investigation and an inquiry into what's really right, what's really wholesome, what's really in accord with what the Buddha taught and what he did. You look at Sutta 98 of the Siddha Sutta, and you really see what the Buddha points at as, as worthy of discrimination, worthy of nobility, that really makes us noble. And all of these things like gender and, and, and color and the way any way that you look or all of these things don't matter that's not we should not be discriminated against one another on these counts what we should look at as is the development of wisdom the development of virtue the development of the mind you know this is this is what this is what matters and you know when when, when we look at those things there's no um, animosity or resentment. It's just like, wow, <laughs> you know, look at the way that person is is glowing um, in their development. You know, this is great. And so, I think the answer to your question is really working with what's happening inside and trying to always 
investigate deeply what's going on so that we don't just pick things up and follow along and and go along as if you know just absorbing and and i also have walked away from some situations because i knew the, the danger of absorbing like a harsh method of training for example you know get out of that situation because i don't want to be doing that to the next person who comes along that kind of thing so we've got to really be on the ball and we need each other you know our kalyanamita because we don't see everything ourselves we you know i love having my friends <laughs> you know we can share with each other you know like what we see and 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 how to how to go forward and that's super important uh, so people people who are also really dedicated to truth and dedicated to those beautiful values uh, that the Buddha encouraged, kindness and compassion and so on. So, yeah, keep your eyes open. Speechless, huh? <laughs> Hi, Aya. This is Lillian. I sort of have a question that I never really don't know how to grab my head around. I mean, um, and and this is my observation. When I go to um, Thai temples and monasteries and I encounter... Thai women, and I talk about my support of the bhikkhunis, they sort of um, would smile and be amused, but didn't really have much. I'm not sure what the, how to describe the reaction. They like, they think it's, they were amused. But uh, I was just, I guess because I'm a Westerner or brought up in the States most of my life, I, I don't understand why in the Thai cultural, um, the way they were brought up, I and mean, I don't know anything about the Thai culture, how, you know, Thai women wouldn't support fellow Thai women. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to generalize, but it seems like it just, I don't understand why Thai women wouldn't want, wouldn't want to make a statement by, by supporting the bikuni movement themselves. I mean, I, I'm thinking, I'm talking about Thai women in America, not in Thailand. Right. So perhaps you can kind of address this for me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just, it's just curious from a Western pair of eyes observing this, meeting a lot of Thai people in, in monasteries and they have a curious attitude. Perhaps you could speak about that. Sure. Thank you, Lillian, because this gives us another kind of angle or 
um, example from which to apply this ability to look deeply into what's happening and have some empathy and understanding and know kind of at least get some sense of what might be the influences there. So I've met um, Thai women who are very opposed to Bikoni ordination and I have and and men too in America and I've met women, Thai women and Thai men too who are very supportive. Uh, I was in Thailand. One of the things about being a Bikuni in Thailand is that a lot of times people think you're a monk because uh, that's their, their frame of reference. They see this robe and this uh, hair and head, <laughs> bald head, and they assume you're a man. And, um, and then it's kind of like, well, when you have to go to the bathroom, um, one, one piece of advice I got was if they ever have those, you know, like uh, family bathrooms, go use that one because then no one can tell any difference. But most of the time I just walk into the women's room and you can have all kinds of reactions happen. And one time I was in, uh, in Bangkok in the women's bathroom and this woman um, followed me out of the bathroom and she dropped to her knees and bowed on the ground. She was so happy to see me. And, you know, there's this, like I said, there's this whole range of where people are on these kinds of things. And I think about how, um, how it was in my life when I was in that little Midwestern community living on the farm and growing up like that. And how when I was a teenager, they had the ERA amendment up for a vote. And some of you... Some of you weren't even born yet, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and how women were sometimes the most vocal op opposition uh, to that kind of um, change. And we can theorize about what might be going on there, some of that absorbing, internalizing um, discrimination, clinging to a kind of um, definition of roles that feel safe, maybe, or, you know, there are all different kinds of, um, yeah, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, there are all different kinds of positions people might take. And a lot of times, uh, even if you're in the West, you're coming from a culture where you have been told over and over again that there's something wrong with becoming a bhikkhuni. And the, the something wrong that's been uh, the story for uh, hundreds of years, really, is that it's against the Vinaya, because um, according to the Vinaya, you have to have uh, five bhikkhunis to ordain a new bhikkhuni. And when the bhikkhuni order got decimated, wiped out, there were no five bhikkhunis to ordinate, ordain a new bhikkhuni, so the proclamation was you can't restart the order. Now, that's not actually, that's only one way to interpret the Vinaya. And you can, uh, Bhikkhu Analyo has done an enormous amount of work to demonstrate that it's not valid, that perception or that perspective is not the only way to look at the Vinaya. Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi has, has talked about the same thing. 
Um, and you know, you can get into the details of that. The books are there, and more and more as as those books go out to and those that information goes out to people, there's more and more kind of like, well, is what I've been told all my life true or not as a bhikkhu, as a lay woman or layman, or is it this um, a different way of looking at it that actually works? And so, I just when I see this, what I think of is that you know we've got uh, a lot of conditioning to work through and deal with and you know it might it's a lot easier to smile a little bit and act like it's not an issue than it is to actually dig into what has my conditioning been and how much of it's true um, what am I following that that really isn't the most compassionate, generous, kind, true following of what the Buddha taught. That's tough. So, you know, I know the people who listen to this program who come to join us on Saturday mornings, you're already well into the willingness to look at these things instead of just go about your life and, you know, not look. So people just in different places and, and it's okay. You know, those ladies are probably wonderful people who are doing good things in the world. And this isn't something they've been able to look at yet. That's my take on it. Thank you, Aya. Thank you, Lillian. Thank you, Aya. Um, I just have a question. I don't know if it's truly related, but I have a question, something about Aya Kemma. Um, because I know she's also um, Thai tradition um, nun, and she's, I mentioned it before, and I, th I think it, thanks to her she really brought me to this tradition uh, even i'm grow up in china you know we have mahayana tradition around i never really um kind of get into that path i just had this when i read her book she seems just by herself and you know she's she went to the thailand but in the end um just just for the friends if they don't know and just read read her book her autobiography and um, she mentioned she just she went to Sri Lanka she ordained a nun and her teaching was so inspiring I just learned everything from her books I didn't even know she passed away I saw like, I need to find her I need to go to see her <laughs> I read all you know all those books but I found out she passed away I was cried that day when I found out so I was just wondering if you could if you know something, would you mention something about that? It seems like I, when I read all her books, I didn't feel anything. She was um, dismayed, being um, like ordained as a in Thai forest or you know um, a tradition nun. But she's talking a lot of still about you know training our mind, training being kind. That kind of um, spirit. I didn't feel like she felt being discriminated. If you know something, would you be able to say something? 
I I don't know anything specific. I haven't I haven't even read her autobiography, which sounds wonderful. Um, but I do, you know, like going to Sri Lanka and having the support of Sri Lankan monks is really the same thing that's happened to us. Um, not in Sri Lanka, but in Los Angeles. So Bhante Piananda, who's been, uh, who's a very senior Sri Lankan monk and has been in America for decades uh, and decades. And he and some of his colleagues started in the 1970s to really work on how to bring about uh, bhikkhuni ordination in, in the Sri Lankan tradition. Uh, and um, it's wonderful. I mean, just, you know, he always had that feeling that there should be, you know, becomes again, and um, and you know, so for us too, our ordination is is through him and and the other monks and and now the kunis that have been ordained. My preceptor got ordained in that first ordination of Sri Lankan women in 1996, and so there's a lot of seniority and wisdom and uh, it's wonderful and so uh, relying on them and also there are some reports that uh, Theravada monks from other other traditions um, who who can't get the bhikkhuni ordination thing going would call up Bhante Piananda and say can you ordain this woman <laughs> and he did <laughs> um, you know and and not me, but other other bhikkhunis. And, and um, you know, so, you know, one way or another, we're working it through slowly. And I think what happened probably with Ayakema is she just, in a lot of ways, like we have said over the years now, KBV, this is our, we've just passed our 11th birthday at KBV. And, um, over the years, we've said we don't talk about this issue very much. We don't pay much attention to it because we're not interested in getting wrapped up in that. We really just try to forget about the nonsense of the last 1,000 years and go back to what the Buddha gave initially and, and don't get embroiled in it. You know, like really, um, I, but, but to really, uh, you know, like, focus on the gold and purifying it. And I'm sure that's what Iakima did too, you know, like focus on the gold. There's so much wisdom here. There's so much work to do to, to purify our conduct and to purify our minds and to develop our meditation. And, you know, when we rub up against those forces that are holding people back, then we push on them. You know, in a good way, in a kind way, in a wise way, and and don't don't take it on as a mission. Just do what's good, what's right. So she was a bhikkhuni. She was a light in the world, and she didn't have to be talking about or thinking about discrimination against women or whatever, you know, it's like you just naturally are doing something to move it forward because of your own way of showing up. And that doesn't invalidate the position of taking a more direct approach. There's a need for that too. 
It's like oftentimes I think about the dichotomies we live with, whether it's the Democrats and the Republicans or, you know, this approach to spirituality or that approach to spirituality. You know, like if you look at it in its purest forms, there is something there that brings balance. Without that opposing perspective, we'd get out of balance. And so for each end of what's being presented, we need to keep purifying to come out with the best of it as much as we can. But, you know, like, we can't just say, okay, we're just going to shut off that voice or that approach. It's really, you need something from that too. Yes. Thank you, Aya. That was very inspiring. I'm so glad I found you as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, Serena. Thank you again, Aya, for all you've said today. For me, it really has covered the spectrum and the balance that's so important on these kind of subjects and, and on everything in our practice. And recent, in, in recent years now, what I, when I'm confused, what I always come back to, and this is from a woman, a bakuni, I think of it all the time, the inward staying, unentangled knowing. And it, and it, and it doesn't mean that we don't, as you say, do something, say something, if it's appropriate in a kind, wise way. Um, but the balance and the all the things you've mentioned today, truth, kindness, which for me, you epitomize the wisdom and the inward investigating and observing of our own experience, our own heart, where we're at home in our heart, that never lies to us. And um, the looking at the doubt, the cultural conditioning, that's huge for all of us globally. That's a big one. And um, the things in those first three, what is it? I had the doubt, the, in, the cultural, the, what's, what's the third? The, oh. And stream entry, the first three. Oh, no. and stream entry. No. Yeah. It's awesome. doubt, doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, our training, the, the adherence to rites and rituals or protocols, you know, going along with the form, uh, thinking that's going to save you without looking deeply. <laughs> and, and then the, the sense of self, the, the eye-making, the mind-making, the, the belief that any part of these five khandas is really going to last and is a, is a self. Those are the three things in the, that fall. Yeah, so so there's plenty to, to look at and work with. And yeah. thanks to Upasaka, I never can say the rest of her name, for reminding me, go inward and really take all the tools that you've brought to us and really truthfully, kindly inquire into it and look for the balance. Thank you again so much for this. Uh, you're welcome. You know, I'm really glad that you brought up that quote, 
because it was by Upasika Kinyanyang. And she wasn't a bhikkhuni. She wasn't even a nun. She was an Upasika, a lay follower. And, you know, why is that? Because she was in Thailand, in the Thai culture. And this is another thing I think it's important for us to, to recognize. To support women in whatever form they find themselves in, that it's all good, it, or it can be good. You know, whether people decide to live as Mechis or, or um, Dasasi Lamata in Sri Lanka, or Sayale uh, in the Burmese tradition, or like Upasaka Ki, she didn't take on any robes. Her sister did, um, but Upasaka Ki and her sister both are honored as Arahants in the Thai tradition. And, you know, it's like, why did she not take on robes? She just went with her aunt and uncle to this abandoned monastery and practiced. I mean, living off of like what the forest provided. Talk about renunciate. You know, she's like, yeah, don't have soft pillows. Use the wood pillows because then you don't have to put them away and worry about them getting ruined. You know, tough as nails, this lady. And if you ever hear a recording of her, her voice sounds like a, a man. She's definitely like the rebirth of some forest monk or something. I don't know what happened there, but you know, it's like. You know, but but to recognize why didn't she do something else? Because that wasn't available and it wasn't it wasn't the point. The point is what we do with our practice, what we do with our minds. And you know, to if we're ever like, oh, you have to be a bakuni or you can't be a bakuni or you should be this way or that way, or you know, like um there was a an an eight precept nun in Thailand who was talking to um, a woman who had come with us who was you know, looking into ordaining and she kept telling her, eight, eight precepts is enough and you don't need to be a bhikkhuni. And, you know, and, it, and, and it's like, I can appreciate where she's at, but she doesn't understand what it's like to be in America. Where no, I was in white robes for five years and I can tell you, nobody here really understands what that is. Or it doesn't. It doesn't have the kind of um, grounding ground here to to support you in the holy life. So here, what's available is bhikkhuni ordination, and that's what makes sense. So that's not true everywhere. We have to like support each other and and appreciate the goodness in being a sile in Burma or somewhere else where that's what's available and these women are studying and they're practicing or the monastery in um, in India where um, uh, what's her name wonderful Bhikkhuni no no um, in India in the cave the cave oh. Um, Tetsuman, Tetsuma, Tenzin Palma. Tenzin Palma. You know, these women are really studying. They're learning. They're 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 moving forward. They're gaining confidence. They're gaining wisdom. You know, like to to really appreciate, regardless of gender, regardless of all those things that Buddha says, you know, really don't matter. To really appreciate the good. You know, really support it. Um, 
and the monks, you know, really appreciate the good, really support it. Uh, I've heard Bhikkhuni say, don't give support to those monks who don't um, support Bhikkhuni ordination. And I would never say that. And the Buddha didn't say that. You know, a, a wealthy layman came to the Buddha. He wanted to argue with him and show the Buddha up. And of course he couldn't. The Buddha gave such wise responses to his questions that he was um, just completely, you know, what I want to transformed really this man. He was a very wealthy, very um, um, influential person. And and he said to the Buddha, well, I want to I want to be a follower of you. I want to I want to be your you know, um, take dependence on you. And, and the Buddha said, well, wait a minute. You've been supporting this other teacher for a long time. And you are very influential. You have a lot of people following you. You've got to really think about this and take it seriously. And don't just pull your support away from that other guy. You know, um, you know, think that over. And then the guy says, well, now I even more want to, like, be, be your disciple because nobody says that. Nobody says, sees someone like me with all my money and my power and, and says, no, wait a minute, don't come here. Just, like, think about it and, you know, support the guy you've been supporting. So nobody says that. Now I really want to be, <laughs> you know. But, but to really reflect on that, you know, it's like... Um, you know, to 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 really to really encourage people to examine what they're doing, on what they're believing, and what you know, like you don't just like pull your support away necessarily. It depends, right? Depends. So I hope this is clear enough. Yeah, Paula? Um, at the very beginning of your talk, I thought it was really helpful that you said that this kind of process of seeing things as only one way, idealistic, it should be this way, maybe this person should not be um, the way they are, and you recognize that and instead you know you give them a little slack um and so your talk is not only useful to what's going on with the kuni ordinations but just in general um how to deal with people when you know they're not completely on board um with what you think they should be or what the truth is, and your suggestion was, we need to be dedicated to the truth. And I'm always looking for like a little bit of a how-to manual, um, because I recognize when I'm in a situation that needs a little bit more um, wise um, speech or wise action, 
but then I'm like a little bit lost as to how to do it. And then later I can reflect on it and think, oh, I should have this or that. And, or why wasn't I kinder? Why did I self so much? So I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit about how to be dedicated to the truth in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it uh, really, um, you know, <coughs> excuse me, that reflection, you know, most of the time for things we haven't reflected on deeply, we can't really come up with the right response in the moment. Mm. That's fair enough. You know, we need to have a chance to, to really reflect. And so later when you recognize, oh, I could have, you know, said this, or I could take this position, then, then that's, that's the, the seed that you water. And then the next time when that plant has grown some, you'll be able to do it next time. And that's how we develop. But that process of reflection on what's happened needs to have some sort of guideline around it. One, that we don't become harsh with ourselves and that we notice any harshness towards the other that we want also to purify because it doesn't help. No matter what we think about how, you know, anger brings up energy and we have the, the guts to fight for something or whatever it is we think there is benefit in any kind of harshness, it really isn't there. Over time, as we develop, we see that fundamentally we have to come from a place of kindness. Even if we have to say something that's hard to hear, coming from a place of kindness. And the Buddha taught this, but we don't really understand it fully until we've seen the, maybe, until we've seen the kind of destruction and fallout that comes when we are harsh, when we are negative when we are uh, taking an attitude of superiority, because there's always selfing in that harshness. And it's destructive. It's not coming from real truth. The real truth is there's no self here. The real truth is uh, any, anything that I think is me or mine is, is, is part of delusion. So. We have to really be willing, when we do that reflection, what just happened and what was my part in it, and how do I want to come to it next time, then we include all these aspects of Dhamma that are true, that we know are true. And we really look at that. But to not become harsh then with ourselves, um, to not fall into some rigid frame of mind or view, but to really be willing to examine everything. And we, you know, what the Buddha said is so simple, you know, like, you know, noticing what kind of mental state you have, and then is it wholesome or unwholesome? And abandoning the unwholesome and cultivating the wholesome. You know, the recipe is simple, but the application is 
<laughs> so interesting because there's so much variation in our experience and you know like but that's that's what we have to come back to yeah that that's helpful it seems like sometimes there's so many suggestions you know it would be you know maybe we just have to sort of stick with that one thing notice the wholesome or the unwholesome and and just work with that for a good period of time until you've got that sunk in and yeah. then try the next suggestion. Cause sometimes I was like, Oh, there's so many good suggestions. Which one do I pull? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. We have time for one more. I think if there's some, something cooking there somewhere, um, Anything on the tip of your tongue? No? You got something to say, Denny? <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> I don't. I'm I'm just really enjoying listening. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> nice to see your face. Steve. That is Steve. <clears throat> yeah, hard time with silences. <laughs> um Yeah, well, I think this uh discussion has been primarily among women and that's that's appropriate for the and I'm it's it's something that kind of comes up in in a lot of different areas um uh what's the right way for men to you know people with all this embedded privilege to um to support something like this uh, to um <clears throat> and uh you know so i i generally take the uh step back and ask how i can support and how how I can help, um, but I yeah I think uh, a lot of what you talked about the tradition the it, it's it, it, we've been talking a lot about uh, views right view and how um, clinging to views kind of gets and I think uh, a, a tradition that kind of hardens those those perspectives kind of uh, takes us back from the uh, from the questioning mind and the the, uh, the view of uh, you know enjoying the astonishment of not knowing. Yeah, thank you, Steve. <clears throat> thank you for that offering about you know what do you do when you're when you're part of the hegemony? How do you how do you approach it? 
And, and again, you know, like, we, we need everybody's support in, in this purification and whatever the particular subject matter is. And I feel really inspired when men voice the the wish for an abundant number of Bikuni monasteries to be all over the world. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of my, my thought, you know, what would the world be like if we had, you know, as many Bikuni monasteries as they have Christian churches in this country, you know. And that's not to discount the Bikku monasteries, we we'll want those too. <laughs> um, and, you know, the benefit that would be gained from that and um, and we need all the all the voices and you know when and, and I'm also in the hegemony uh, in my in my own situation as a white person and I, I want to really understand the blind spots that that causes and how am I how can I be aligned with people who are not in that agenda? And how can I not act like there's no difference, but recognize that in terms of our nobility, the differences are on a different scale. And that that's what needs to be supported uplifted and um, you know so finding ways I'm I'm all for affirmative action you know finding ways to to support those who have been disadvantaged by societal influences and culture and you know all of that to highlight and encourage that development of those noble qualities evermore and the opportunity for those voices to be heard is really beautiful and every one of us can do that in one way or another and so you know just keeping that in mind that our own thoughts even let alone our words and our actions do make a difference in the world. And we have these opportunities at every moment to be generous and kind and, and you know, like uncovering what's true, the gold, discovering it and purifying it. So thank you all for participating today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.